Um, I will pray for you, and then if I missed anything there in way of introduction, yep. you can you can fill in. Father, thank you for this brother. Thank you for the work you've done in his life. Thank you for his family. Uh, Thank you for his desire to serve you. And um, God, as he comes to bring your word to us this afternoon, Lord, I ask that you would speak through him. God, that you would equip him uh, to share your truth with us, uh, to encourage us. God, that you would speak in a mighty way through him. Uh, Bless him and his family as they're in this time of transition, help them to trust in you, uh, to wait on you, and to know that you are good. You are their provider and their protector. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you. Hey, Josh. And uh, yeah, that visit in October or November, whenever it was, it feels like it was a long time ago, but uh, we... I kind of got the nudge to do that when Julie was at a practicum and she was sitting between Josh's wife, Lindsay, and, uh, and her sister, is it Natalie? Yeah, and they're both twins, and Julie remarked about that and how she connected with them, and uh, of course, Natalie's a, the wife of a Presbyterian pastor, and, uh, Nat- and Natalie is the wife of an elder, and I thought, I've been thinking about this long enough, I think God's trying to give me a hint, I need to talk to somebody and actually start to work through what I think he's telling me, and Josh uh, has been a blessing, Dan Breed up at Emmaus Road, and we've really, we've been welcomed so well by people, it's, it's tough to think about changing denominations after four years, but uh, the Lord has used so many people in the PCA here in Wisconsin to, to really make us feel at home, even though it's a difficult transition, because these things are never really, really that easy to do. You have family at the church that you're at, and and I want to I thank you for making it easier for our kids today by having church service at 4.30 in the afternoon because they got to stay up late for one of the first times before church on a Saturday night, wake up around 10 for the boys, and uh, so they're liking Livingstone already, so we appreciate that a lot. That's, that's a very nice thing. Um, my kids are in the back. It's Jeremiah, Levi, Elizabeth, and Hannah managed to skip uh, to a different family already. She's, she's a row up there. And Julie is my wife, and you can see her back there as well. Um, they weren't here back in January when we got to visit, but that visit in January was really nice. That, that helped us just to feel like, yeah, we can do this. We can make this transition. So I don't know who was all here that got to meet us then, but thank you for being part of that as well. Um, our, our story, we, I won't go into much of it, but we're from Sheboygan County. We grew up there, and then we, God led us to Minneapolis for 18 years uh, to a missionary Bible college and to uh, serve in a church just in a volunteer way and work full-time. And, and then out of the blue, when we're on Highway 41, coming up to uh, going from Plymouth to Minneapolis, as I was praying, everybody's passed out in the car. Uh, just had a very strong sense of call as I was praying for, for God to send pastors who had theological depth and a real love for the Lord to the area. Uh, I had the sense of, what if you're one of those pastors? And the Lord confirmed that in all kinds of ways, I was about, uh, I think, 29 years old at that point and went through seminary, sold the house, and uh, four and a half years later, ended up in the, in the Fox Valley in Appleton, which is an amazing story for us. So, it's, uh, it's, another, it's another journey right now, and we'll see where God sends us. But we're hoping we could even stay in the valley. We'll see what he does. Um, it's a privilege to be invited here and to get to speak on the book of Genesis. It's uh, one of my favorite books in the Bible, and I love it because there's some rich stories. 
and you have the, the introduction of all these great themes in Scripture right before your eyes in, their, in really their genesis, their start, their, their, their rough shape as God's introducing them to us. And you guys have had a great privilege. I've got to listen to, to Josh's messages uh, from about two of the last three weeks, and you are learning a ton. I mean, I, I remember my seminary class in Genesis, and I think I'm, I was learning more from Josh and his messages than what I got in seminary, so you've got a, you've got a blessing here. He's, he's giving you a lot, and, and hopefully you can distill all that and, and, and work through all that and apply it to life. Um, but there's some great themes that you've already got into. God bringing chaos to order. That is a theme throughout Scripture that starts right in the beginning. Um, the responsibility he gives to people, the, the dominion, the fact we bear his image, and we have a tremendous gift that's given from the Lord. Uh, God's covenantal nature, the fact that we're his children, um, profound things. The inclination that we have towards sin and the way it corrupts us so much more deeply than we think it does. Uh, you, you've gotten to go through all of that just in the first three chapters, and also the remarkable grace of God that pursues us, even though we go very, very far away into some very dark places. Um, it's all right there, just in the beginning, those opening chapters. And, and today we dive a little deeper into the nature of sin and how God pursues us in Genesis 4. Um, if you're like me, when you, when you saw Adam and Eve and what they did last week, and not just taking from the tree of knowledge and eating, but then being confronted, hiding, blaming each other, blaming the serpent, blaming God, blaming everybody but themselves, not taking accountability. You're, you're kind of thinking you're leaving the garden, you're getting banished. Just apologize. You know, like we talk to, like a lot of us talk to our kids, just say you're sorry. It's pretty simple. It's not that hard. You made a really obvious mistake. You can get some of this back. You just need to humble yourselves. But... As we think about human nature and we look at human nature in the Bible, it's not that simple, is it, right? It's never that simple for us, even though on the surface people can say, oh, it's so simple. It's not that simple. And, uh, and I don't need anyone to raise their hands, but I'm just wondering, how many of us grew up in families where our parents were kind of like Adam and Eve, where uh, what, uh, what Paul describes in 2 Timothy 3.5 was the experience. There's a, there's a form of godliness. There's a desire to have a relationship with God, but it's distant, and it denies the power. And, and we go, we went through the motions with our family, but, but there was not true repentance, and there was not true dependence on Christ that was at the core. Um, I have a friend who's a pastor, and he describes his, his young days as, uh, in his testimony, I grew up and I had a drug problem. I lived in the hood, and my drug problem was my parents drug me to church on Sundays, and they drug me to church on Wednesdays. And for him, his parents meant well, but for a lot of us, we can relate to that probably, just being forced to go to church, and maybe our parents didn't really have that relationship with the Lord. And... We, we did some of the right things, we were taught some of the right things, but God wasn't that close. And there's so many families where God is pursued on the outside, but on the inside, we are living for position, we are living for accomplishments at work or in the eyes of men, uh, we're living for our own glory, we're living for certain relationships we feel like we need to have, we're living for attention, we're, we're living for entertainment, all kinds of things that 
under the surface, they have our heart. And we just have a form of godliness uh, without the power. And this is this seems to be the situation in Genesis 4. Things look okay on the surface, but there's a storm brewing underneath, like there can be in so many families. And, and something's going to happen, and it's, and it's hard. So let's, let's go there right now to Genesis 4, if you can open up with me, if you have your Bibles. And uh, let me pray for us as we, as we get started here. Father, we praise you for this day, just the, uh, the stun, sun that was streaming in the windows when we got started, a reminder of your grace, uh, the light that your word brings. It is, it's a privilege to know your word. We know a lot of us might have 10 copies of it at home, but it would be worth selling everything to have if, we, if that was what we needed to do to possess it. It, uh, it shows us life. It shows us what's true, and it guides us to the path of reconciliation through the gospel and a whole new life in Christ. And we just thank you for it. We want to know more. We want to see it more clearly. Even if we've read the story 50 times, we just pray that it would be fresh again for us. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's start out in verse 1. We read, Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten... Literally, I have acquired a man with the help of the Lord. Adam and Eve, they seem to have some distance with God in their relationship, but good things still happen. Good things still happen, just like the, uh, the skins that uh, God made from the animals when Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. God shows his grace, he shows his provision, and he gives them probably the greatest gift that any parent, that any, any couple could receive. And that's kids, these precious, precious children that we get entrusted with. And whether, whether you're a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle or, or a mentor who gets to be a spiritual parent in a child's life or an aunt or an uncle, it is precious to have that position and to have that role in a kid's life. And, and it's amazing. It's amazing God would, would entrust them to us, especially when you think about dads and some of the stuff we do, Right? I mean, uh, I, remember, I remember things like, let's not just go off the jump at the sledding hill. Let's make that jump the biggest jump that's ever existed. And so when you launch in the air, you can wave to your mom at her house because you're going to see her from how high you are. And then we'll make this big explosive pile of snow when you hit the, when you hit the landing. It's going to be great. And then, you know, you have a, you have a twisted arm or a, or a slight head injury later. And you start to wonder, as a dad, what was I thinking at that moment? God entrusts kids knowing that we're going to do this kind of stuff. We're going to make these kind of mistakes and a whole lot more. And he entrusts a child to Adam and Eve, and, and Eve seems to get it. She seems to get that Cain is a, is a gift from God, and there's praise, and there's recognition, and I'm sure Adam is happy, and, 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 it's, and it's a moment of joy, but one thing we don't see in this opening passage is there's not true repentance yet over the sin that lies in the background in the garden, and that has an impact. This is, this is probably the kind of home where there's, there's some fun times, there's some good times, uh, there's, there's real joyful moments, but there's something that's bad buried in the attic. And when you're distant from God, when you have a broken relationship with God, it affects everything, even if you can't see it, 
even if you don't know it. I mean, parenting is hard. Uh, I think all of us parents would raise our hands when we say we've had our sanity tested in the last month by, by parenting kids, maybe in the last week, maybe on the way to church. It's, it takes you down to the, the very, very end of what, what you have for your own resources, and thank, thankfully in Christ there are abundant resources beyond what we have, but if you have a broken relationship with God, the difficulty, it just multiplies, and it is so hard and and you can, you can make things look good, and they can feel like they're going okay, but under the surface, something is brewing. There is pain. There is brokenness. We tend to use each other. We, we tend to hurt each other without knowing because our selfishness takes hold. We struggle to reconcile because it's so hard to humble yourself in front of your kids if you don't know Christ and you haven't been humbled in front of him. And the wounds tend to get deeper, even though we might not be able to see them. And usually something big eventually happens that nobody saw coming. And uh, we, have, we have people we know who, who've been through adultery, and they never, they never thought it was going to happen to them. There was a struggle between in the, in the husband-wife relationship. It wasn't working. And there just became a connection with a co-worker, and it led to a place that the husband never thought it was going to go. Big things happen with, with kids. Um, some people don't even see the hurt that's building in their child's heart. And they, they get to the teenage years and, uh, and they don't recognize that there's pain that they are desperate to escape. And, and they turn to drugs or they turn to self-harm. And parents might even see the walls that are there and they try to take them down and they can't do it because the walls are too thick and it gets even worse when they try. Big Things happen that are brewing for a long time when our relationship with God is broken. And even when it's, when it's there and we start to have some separation, these things can still happen. In the family of our first parents, it happens at the place that we'd never expect it to happen. Right at the altar of worship of all places. And that's, that's a lot to get your mind around. Let's, uh, let's read verses 2 through 5. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. First of all here, we've got to point out there's a sign of hope. Uh, Abel and Cain, over the course of time, have learned how to worship. They've learned to make offerings to God. They've learned that you give God from what he has provided, and you show honor to him. You give respect and thanks to him. And uh, they're obviously taught by their parents. But we also see that, uh, like many families, they may have not been taught very well because Cain gets it wrong. They're probably a family that was told what to do, but maybe not really shown by example what to do. And Cain is off the mark, and he misses it. But God was working in Abel. We learn in Hebrews 11.4, there's a commentary on that Abel wasn't just approved in his offering, but by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteousness. So Cain's offering isn't just... Well done. It's done with faith. 
It's done with a, a right belief in who God is and how he needs him. And maybe an apprehension of the grace that he needs in his own relationship with God because of the fall of sin. He was commended as righteous. We hear that about Abraham later in Genesis. They both brought their offerings, and God accepted Abel's. Some have suggested uh, Cain, the reason he had a problem with his offering was because he needed to, uh, to bring something from the flock, uh, an animal like a sheep that could be a blood substitute, a blood offering, and make atonement for sins. And that's, uh, that's why Cain's offering wasn't approved, because we see that uh, in Leviticus, uh, the blood makes atonement for sins. But if we look at the context here, and a number of commentators will point out, uh, that doesn't seem to be what the context is saying. There's not any hint that that's what God was looking for here, especially when we, we read through the first five books of the law, and over and over again we see the command to bring the first fruits. We see that plant and animal sacrifices are good, and they're commanded, and, uh, and God commands, bring the first fruits, bring the best And that seems to be the difference right here, because what did Abel bring that Cain didn't bring? He brought the first, the firstborn, the first fruits of the flock, and the fat portions, which these days we throw the fat away, but back then, fat was the best portion of the animal. That was the best thing. And you give it to God if you want to give him the best. The firstborn were the strongest, the largest, and they were also the first. They meant you were giving God the first thing you had and trusting him to provide what was needed. And Abel did that, but Cain did not. He, he just gave from the produce, from the fruits of the ground. And what that sounds like is just some of what he had. Maybe a mix. We're not told much more, but it's different than what Abel gave. And it might be, it's easy for me to think, you know, Cain, this is not that hard to figure out. You just give the first, you give the best, you get it right. That's how it works. But I think if we think about it a little bit, we can probably relate to Cain a little more easily than we might want to admit. Um, if you're not in a good place with God, if you're not feeling like his grace is fresh today, uh, his, his glory is awesome, and you love just walking with him, if you're not in that place, it gets pretty hard to give God your best. It's so easy for deadlines at work just the urgency of what I got to get done. Deadlines are, are getting kids to places or whatever relationship needs tending to today or whatever stuff needs to get done today. It's easy for that to get in the way. It's easy for what people think of me to take a lot more priority than what God thinks of me because it, it really feels like it matters. It's easy to give our best to other things and then to settle for giving God what's left over afterwards. I don't know if uh, you guys have a lot of leftovers in, in your home, but uh, we've got four kids, and uh, we make a lot of food. We have a lot of leftovers, so on, on the days where Julie's out shopping on like a Saturday and I'm, I'm taking care of the meal, my kids love it because I go in, I clean out the fridge, I'm going all the way back, getting the, getting the choice leftovers from the back of the fridge that haven't seen light for a little while, and we're going to try to eat our way out of uh, having to throw them away. And the kids get their assigned portions, and we pray, and we eat, and sometimes we have to pray again because that first bite tells us that we should not have been eating this in the first place. It's past its time, and thankfully no one's gotten sick, but that's, that's not a bad thing to do every now and then with your kids and make a mistake and correct it right away, and 
serve spoiled leftovers to your family as, as long as you write the course quickly. But that's not a good offering to give to God, is it? What's in the back of the fridge, the spoiled leftovers of our life that really aren't fit to give anybody. But how often do we end up giving God just what's left and really shouldn't see the light of day in our lives? Our leftover money, this is what we've got left this month. We'll give that to God. Uh, Our leftover time, energy at the end of the day. If I've got a little bit left, I'll give it. I'll show up. I'll go to to community group or whatever it is. Um, How many times do we read the word and we're reading it just to say we got through it today and not because we want to give our best to God and experience the best from him? It's something that happens, I think, for all of us. It happens to me different times of the day, every day, and I need grace to help me with that. I need God's help. It's a trap we fall into so easily. And according to Jude, verse 11, this was a trap. It seemed like Cain was just caught in and couldn't get out. It says, he abandoned himself. He abandoned everything that really mattered just for mere selfish gain. And that was, that's what was going on that made Cain's offering such a problem. He wanted, he wanted the reward. He craved the reward of God's approval, but he didn't want the relationship through which that approval comes. He didn't want that love relationship, that humble relationship. He just wanted to get the approval on his terms, which is such an easy place to get into, even when we come to church on a Sunday. Verse 5, the second half of verse 5 through verse 7 shows this has a big impact. It says, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. We see here, Cain is not just disappointed that God rejected his offering. He's not just like, oh boy, that's a bummer. Cain is lit up. Uh, there's, there's probably some history of rivalry with Abel that this comes from. And Cain, at this point, might be thinking, if he's this angry, something like, you know, Abel's younger, he's always had it easier than me. I'm working the ground by the sweat of my brow every day, and he's weaker, and he gets to tend the flocks, and he always gets it easier. And I don't even get credit from God for the hard work I do. And I give it to him. What's going on? Cain is lit up with anger. It's so easy to slip into that kind of thinking when God doesn't bless us when we think he needs to or in the ways that we really depend on him to. And there's a, there's a beautiful thing in the way God approaches Cain right here. I think it's how he approaches all of us when we start to get lit up and we start to build our defenses against him and kind of hollow, hollow our heart towards him. He could have said, you know, Cain, you're being a selfish fool. Do you know what I give to you? Do you know how much I've built and made for you? Do you know how much I've poured my love into you and you haven't responded? And this is what you're going to do? You're going to complain? He doesn't say anything like that, although he'd be justified to let Cain know where he really stands at that moment. Instead, he just gently peels one layer back in Cain's relationship with him. And he says, Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? 
It doesn't seem like much, but what God does is he gently gets Cain's attention off of his brother, who he thinks is the source of his problems. And maybe God is the source of his problems as well, but especially it looks like his brother is the source of his problems in his mind. And he gets his attention on that big plank that's in his eye, according to Jesus. The anger that's just festering inside of his heart. And he says, Cain, this is what needs to get dealt with. This is the dangerous thing. This is what's going to eat you alive. And he does it in a way where he says, Cain, there's a path out for you. And he holds that out to him. He doesn't force him, but he offers a path out of where Cain is headed. I don't know how many times we've been in that place ourselves where you can feel so justified by your anger, right? You can feel like you're so right and the other people are so wrong and you're getting ready to throw that spear and it feels like it needs to fly in the air and hit its target and God's whispering in your ear, hold on, why are you so angry? Let me bring you back. And we know we can feel so justified, but what we do in the hindsight of history, when we look back, was so incredibly stupid, right? I mean, we can probably all spend a minute and think of three or four things we have said or done in our life in anger that were just incredibly stupid. And some of them we can't really take back. Some take years to solve and reconcile. Some take even a lifetime. And God sits next to us just like to Cain, leaning in and saying, let me bring you back. Look at what's going on in here. And if this is the first time we've read this story, we're hoping Cain gets it. We're hoping that he doesn't go the next step because we know what it can do. And, and at first, in verse 8, if this is the first time reading it, it just says Cain spoke to his brother. There's a moment of hope. Maybe Cain gets it. Maybe he's like, you know what? I've got to clear the air with my brother. There's stuff going on here that we just got to work through, and God can help us. But in the next sentence, we see that Cain actually, instead of wanting to talk to his brother, he uses the self-control that God gives us as a gift to control and mask his anger so Abel can't see it and convince him that he's safe to go visit him in a secluded place. Maybe he said, hey, I just want to talk to you about something. It needs to be private, though. Can you come join me? And he's able to conceal his anger with the gift God's given him. And then what we read in the next sentence. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's a shocking thing to read in the fourth chapter of the first book of the Bible with the first family that ever walked this face of the earth, right? I mean, if you're like me, you wish this was an isolated incident. You wish this was a very, very, very rare thing in the Bible and in history because... This is an incredibly shocking thing to happen to the first family. But there is, we live in a world that echoes Genesis 4, don't we? We live in a world of school shootings that seem to happen every two months now. We live in a world of domestic violence. I, I was shocked two years ago to hear the statistic in Ottagamie County up in Appleton that there are 3,000 cases of reported abuse or neglect per year just in Ottagamie County for child abuse. That is shocking. What Genesis 4 shows us 
is that this is all too common. And, and deep down, we want to know, why does this happen? You know, why, why does it happen around us? How could, how could Cain do this to his brother in the first place? I mean, he's his brother. This text says, Genesis 4 says that seven times his brother Abel, it wants us to know this is his brother that he's doing this, his own flesh and blood. This isn't somebody who made him mad in a bar one night. This is his brother, his family member that he's grown up with. You know, Cain never saw anybody killed. He never experienced even death of a human being up to this point. He, he wasn't somebody who hopped on mom and, dad, mom and dad's Netflix account and watched violent movies when they weren't paying attention. He didn't have an AR-15. Everything that we kind of talk about is reasons for why people do this, including, including child abuse. That's not even on the radar in Genesis 4. And what... The Bible is saying, the message here is that there is something in the heart of man that makes this possible, not just possible, but very possible for all of us. It's, it's hard to hear, but right from the beginning, Scripture is saying we have a deeper problem than just being prone to make mistakes and getting angry. We see it in the, uh, the evil leading up to the flood, which I believe Josh is going to cover next week or the week following, where things just go from bad to worse. Violence gets worse, and it gets to the point where God has to wipe out the entire population of earth, except for one family, because it's gotten so bad. But maybe even more stunning is what God has to say after the flood in Genesis 8.21. He says, you know, after the bad people were removed, God says, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his birth, from his youth. God doesn't say the actions of man are evil from their youth. That would be making a strong statement. He says the intent of mankind is evil from his youth, from the earliest days, the intent, the desire, the inclination. What we want to do naturally without God is evil. We, uh, we see in Romans 3 and, and throughout the Bible, this is a theme that just gets built upon. There is no one righteous, not even one, is what we read in Romans 3. No one seeks after God. They've all turned to their own way. John 4 says that without Christ, we are captivated by sin and, and we are held captive by it. Whoever sins is a slave to sin. You have the freedom to choose, but the only choice you can make is how badly are you going to sin? And we don't like to hear that, but we know, deep down, we know it's true. That is true about human nature. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus makes it clear that the roots of murder are in all of us. Right in Matthew 5, in the Sermon 521, he says, you have, You've heard it said that it was said of those, to those of old, you shall not murder, That's the sixth commandment in the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the very fire of hell. You see, what what Scripture shows us is that uh, we, we don't just have mild temptations. We have longings that go against God. We have things we feel like we need 
literal desires that are inside of us. We crave our honor and our glory above God's glory. We, we crave our power and our pleasure in the moment above anybody else's. And, and we crave love for ourselves and we want control. And what happens is when someone gets in the way of that, us getting our selfish desires fulfilled, we get angry. We get upset. We feel it deeply, many times very deeply. And it's not like godly anger, where there's the ability to have compassion and, uh, and desire reconciliation and salvation for the person who's become your enemy. Human anger just wants to see them hurt or to damage their reputation in a way that causes lasting pain to them. It just wants to get even and cause damage. And Jesus is saying that anger that we experience is a lot closer to murder than we would like to think that it is. It puts us in the very danger of hell if it's not met with God's grace in Christ. And we see it throughout human history. In the last hundred, a hundred years, there's been hundreds of millions who have died at human hands, at people's hands, because of things like this, because we want to get what we want, and there's this dehumanizing kind of attitude that comes over us in our anger when someone is taking what I think I need for myself. It's ridiculous. This has been the most violent, violent century in the last, in all of history. Even more people have died in this century than all of history combined based on the best estimates we can make. We're surrounded. We're surrounded by evil. And the message of scripture, thankfully, is there's an answer. The message is we need to be saved from ourselves. We cannot get out of this alone. We can't self-help our way out of this. What we see is that literally the Son of God has to leave his throne in heaven and become man and live that perfect life that Josh was talking about that we could never live in our place and then take the sin and literally become sin for us and take the curse of it, take the wages of death that are the wages of sin to take the punishment and the very wrath of God on the curse of a cross and what Colossians 2 says and have that record nailed to himself, the record of debt nailed to himself so it could be separated from it forever, so it could be paid in full for us and so we could receive the righteousness of Christ that we never had and become a new creation in Christ, that the Holy Spirit could come and re-inhabit us, make us literally temples of God and give us a new life with a new heart that can walk away from these things in fellowship with God in the grace of Christ. And thank God that is absolutely what happened. And 2 Corinthians 5.17 assures us, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And, and if you're here tonight and you don't have that relationship with Christ, and you don't, and maybe you, you, you've, you've gone through the motions, even prayed prayers, but you know he is not Lord of your heart. You're not depending on his grace. We want you to meet him. We want you to meet him today. We want you to know this salvation because everyone here that knows him will tell you we are lost and we are a mess. And there's literally evil that runs our life without him. And for those of us who do know him, we don't outgrow the gospel. We don't say, I prayed the prayer and now I'm good and now I just live the obedient life and I walk on the clouds. 
We know sin is still in us. Galatians 5, so there's a war of desires still going on inside. Those evil desires are still there, and they can take hold. And we need the grace of God in Christ every single day. It is life for us. And John 15, 5 reminds us that if we abide in Christ like like a branch, a vine in the branch, if we take all our life from him, if his words abide in us, if we depend on him, you will bear much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's, That's the gospel. We don't outgrow it, and it is the only solution to the human condition. And thank God, it is real, and it is true, and we know him, and we're worshiping him today because it transforms all of life. And Abel bears witness to this gospel, even, even without saying a word in Genesis 4. Because Hebrews 11.4, again, it tells us, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. We might think Abel didn't even get a word in, but he did not die in vain. He demonstrated the righteousness that comes through faith. He looks like he was the first human being to do that, and he gave his life for it. He even was a picture of Christ and his sacrifice for us. And through his death, he revealed the way back to God for his whole family. The rest of Genesis 4, it it shows that there was a choice that there was the, the choice to follow in the way of Abel and embrace the grace of God, and there was a choice to follow the way of Cain and reject it. And we see the choice is, is right there before us as well as we look at the rest of this, this chapter. Verses 10 to 16, we see the path of rejection of the gospel in Cain. Um, arrogantly, we don't have time to read all this, but, uh, but arrogantly, God... Cain tells God off in verse 9. He says, am I my brother's keeper when he's confronted? He just pushes God to the side when he's just murdered his brother. He's caught in evil. And maybe verse 13 is a sign of hope because uh, Cain seems to agree that he should be punished. He doesn't argue that he shouldn't be punished. He just argues that the punishment is more than he can bear. There may be a sign of hope there, but that's all we see. We see a glimpse. We see a glimmer. And then we see Cain negotiating his way uh, to something that might be more comfortable for him. That's about it. At the same time, though, we see God's tremendous mercy. Cain has just killed his brother, and God is allowing him to live. And not just allowing him to live, he's protecting him. And in the process, he's showing Cain there's still a way back. Maybe 10 years from now, maybe 20 years, maybe 100 years, there is still a way back to me. I'm preserving you, and there's a purpose here. He offers exceptional mercy. But we see that way is hard to take hold of because in Cain's descendants in verses 17 to 24, it just seems to go from bad to worse. We don't see any of Cain's descendants seeking God. We really don't know what they're doing. We just get a list of names until we get to Lamech, the fifth generation after Cain. And it's not good what we see in Lamech. He's the first man who breaks with God's two-becoming-one-flesh marriage covenant and plan for one man and one woman for life. He's the one who introduces polygamy into the world. And we see what kind of heart he does it with because when he talks to his wives in verse 23, 
He talks to them like he's talking to slaves, not like he's talking to equals. Lamech is on a descent even further than Cain went because we hear he killed a man just like Cain did as well. And he doesn't even submit to God's authority or the authority God's put on the earth at that time. Instead, he takes the authority of God and he says, if anyone, if anyone raises their hand against me, they will receive 77 times the vengeance. Not seven times like Cain. And we see that the path of rejecting the grace of God, it doesn't just leave you in a place of sin. It leaves you in a place of multiplying sin, generation by generation. But in verses 25 to 26, after so much bad news, we see the other path, and the path of Abel. Verse 25, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born, a son was born, and uh, he also, he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Cain's family on one side appears to be going from bad to worse. On the other side, though, the memory of Abel lives on in Genesis 4. Something happened when Enosh was born. In, in God's plan, we see he was a son to carry on Abel's legacy of faith. Because in verse 26, there's something new that has never happened before. In verse 26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord they're calling out. It's a, it's a summons. It's, a, it's, a, it's probably a recognition of need, a seeking of God's face. There's something stirring in people's hearts, and they're responding to the grace of God that's been offered in, the, in those skins, those animal skins that were made in Genesis 3, and the preservation of life for Adam and Eve, and the, and the gift of children, in the, uh, in, the, in the righteousness that was given to Abel, and in the, the mercy that was given to Cain, Men are now starting to respond. People are starting to respond and call on the name of the Lord. And we don't know exactly how it all worked, but we know that the legacy of Abel had something to do with that. And God was using his legacy even though he was gone. I want to encourage you. Um, let's pay attention to that trap of selfish ambition that Cain fell into because it's in the heart of all of us. It wants to take hold. If we, if we don't know Christ, if you don't know Christ tonight, you're in desperate need for that saving relationship with God, the, the calling on the Lord to deliver you that, that happened in, in verse 26. We would love to talk with you about that relationship and help you to seek God. If we're in Christ... We need to be reminded of just how far we can stray, how much damage it can do to the people we love the most, how much damage it can do to our relationship with God, and how much we need the grace of Christ, and we need to stay close to our shepherd. Because things can happen that we have no awareness of when sin starts to take hold. Let's pay attention to that voice of God that says, whoa, you need to come back from the anger. You need to come back from giving me the leftovers. You need to come back from whatever it is that is getting in the way. And let me lead you through. I've given you my spirit. It's going to show you the way forward. 
Let's, uh, let's seek God in prayer about that right now. <clears throat> Father, these are, these are big themes. These are, these are heavy themes. Uh, every one of us has been touched by the fall and experienced just the, the brutality of what sin does. And we've, sadly, if we're totally honest, we've done some brutal things ourselves. And we want to just take this moment to thank you for your grace. Thank you for your grace that stays offered to us, just like it was offered to Cain, even though he didn't want a piece of it. And we thank you that we know Christ. For all of us who are in Christ, we're new creations and we're saved out of that bondage of sin. You've made a way. You've helped us. Help us not to lose heart. Help us not to get distracted by, by the promises of sinful desires that lead to nothing but emptiness and destruction. Help us to come closer to you and be close to you, our shepherd, and depend on your grace each day, the way that we were made to depend. And Lord, I pray as we get to celebrate communion and the, the powerful message of it, it is of your presence with us and your grace with us and your power to change our lives through the cross, I just pray whatever, whatever you're putting the hand on for us today, it might not even be something that was even mentioned in this sermon or even at this service. Lord, I pray just help us to deal with that with you in the way that you'd like us to do that during this communion time. We ask this and we thank you for all of your goodness in Jesus' name. Amen.